Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies, where we look at new books about the Bible, from modern-day commentaries and art books to scholarly monographs and reference works. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I'm talking with Richard B. Hayes, the George Washington Ivy Professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School. Internationally recognized for his work on the letters of Paul and on New Testament ethics, His scholarly work has bridged the disciplines of biblical criticism and literary studies, exploring the innovative ways in which early Christian writers interpreted Israel's scripture. His book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, Community, Cross, New Creation, was selected by Christianity Today as one of the 100 most important religious books of the 20th century. His other books include The Art of Reading Scripture, co-edited with Ellen Davis, The Conversion of the Imagination, and Seeking the Identity of Jesus, a Pilgrimage, which he co-edited with Beverly Roberts Graventa. Professor Hayes has lectured widely in North America, Europe, Israel, Australia, New Zealand, and Hong Kong. An ordained United Methodist minister, he has preached in settings ranging from from rural Oklahoma churches to London's Westminster Abbey. He served as Dean of Duke Divinity School from 2010 to 2015. On today's program, we talk about his two most recent books, Reading Backwards, Figural Christology and the Fourfold Gospel Witness, and The Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, both published by Baylor University Press. Professor Hayes, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, Sure. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma, uh, went to uh, an Episcopal day school uh, as a a high school student and had a rich education there that included daily chapel, sort of getting the Book of Common Prayer into my bones, although I was uh, a Methodist by family upbringing. Uh, I went to Yale as an undergraduate, uh, ended up being an English major at Yale, and uh, particularly immersed in uh, poetry and drama of the 16th, 17th centuries, and uh, then went on after that uh, to seminary, uh, graduated from Yale Divinity School and uh, went on to a Ph.D. at Emory uh, in uh, New Testament studies. So how did you switch from English to New Testament studies? What led to that decision? Well, of course, I just gave a very brief account. I, uh, When I left, when I graduated from Yale, I had no intention of going on into an academic career. Um, I got a job teaching high school English and did that for a couple of years and uh, 
was very frustrated, actually, because I kept discovering that the great literature I was teaching uh, inevitably raised fundamental questions about the meaning of life and uh, how people respond to suffering and the complexity of, of the human predicament. And as a, as a public school English teacher, I felt very constrained of not being able to speak very freely about religious matters. And so I ended up deciding that uh, I needed to go back and learn more uh, about Christian uh, tradition, theology, and scripture in order to be able to answer the questions I myself had. So that was the, the, the way that that developed. And then once I got into seminary teaching, uh, taking courses, uh, I was both fascinated by the subject matter and frustrated by the ways I found a lot of biblical scholars approaching the text because they were less interested in the wholeness and message of the texts in many cases than they were in trying to excavate some sort of hypothetical prehistory of the texts. So um, I think that has, uh, my response to that has left its stamp on most of my work as a New Testament scholar. I've been attempting to uh, come to the texts with the sensibility of someone trained as a, a literary uh, reader of texts and to recover the powerful and surprising messages of these texts by, by that kind of reading. It, it is certainly one of the things that distinguishes your work um, where you're, you really make an effort to look at the whole of a work before looking at its parts and that the whole has to inform its parts. Was there a part of your literary training or sensibility early on that helped to discipline that kind of reading? Because it is quite remarkable um, how you you never stray from that pattern, that, that you're always attentive to this larger um, uh, the, the larger work and the way in which um, that uh, more coherent or, um, um, you know, reading of the text has to inform each of its parts. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a nice observation. Uh, I think so. I mean, when I was an undergraduate at Yale in the 60s, 1960s, it was at that point still an English department that was fundamentally built and shaped by the what was called the New Criticism. Um, it predated the emergence of uh, deconstruction and the, the various uh, kinds of postmodernist approaches to literature that have since become dominant. So the, the way that I was taught to read texts was actually not to be so concerned about uh, the historical circumstances of the production of the text or influences on the author or those kinds of things, uh, but rather to look at the way in which the language of the text worked, its imagery, um, use of metaphor, uh, the and, and to think about uh, how the text worked as a, as a complete work of art, if you will. So I think that is what has informed the pattern you're describing in my scholarship. 
The other thing I would say about it, though, is that uh, some of what you're describing, I think, simply comes from my experience of now 35 years of teaching seminary students in New Testament courses. And, you know, they need to understand the wholeness of the texts that they're going to be preaching on uh, if they want to interpret it well for their congregations. So uh, I've, I've always taken it as a, a goal in teaching to try to help them see how it all works together, that the Bible is not just a collection of little verses or tidbits of wisdom or something like that, but that these are, when they're, <clears throat> when they're reading the Gospel of Luke, for example, they're reading a text that has a narrative uh, shape to it, and that to see what's going on in the text, you have to read the thing whole and see how the parts relate to the whole. That's and I, I think that's a very uncommon thing these days. Well, I think we're uh, interpretively we can be so focused on a certain strand of um, a narrative or a theme. Um, uh, I think th- th- there are all kinds of ways that that happens, but when but it does make you blind to the way in which these things function as a part of the larger narrative. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think we've. It's partly a, a function of the decline of humanities in general in uh, liberal arts education. People are, uh, we, we are taught to read, uh, if you will, instrumentally uh, to sort of extract information. Uh, and we're not taught as well as perhaps we once were to read texts as literary works of art that have their own integrity and their own way of addressing us. So. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that, I'm, I may be uh, a voice crying in the wilderness in that regard, but I'm, <laughs> I'm trying uh, in, in what I write to help people see that wholeness. Mm-hmm. Now, you're, you're also an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. Uh, when were you ordained, and how did that come about? Uh, I, I've done most things backwards, it seems, in my career, but I, I actually um, I grew up in the Methodist Church, uh, but during the time that I was <clears throat> teaching high school, I got involved in a non-denominational uh, house church community that was trying to live out uh, a kind of radical Christianity. We were very much influenced by reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, and uh, so I, I, I moved away from any denominational affiliation during those years, Uh, And I didn't return to it until I was in the Ph.D. program at Emory and uh, made the decision I needed to return to my roots and be accountable to a a larger uh, church community. And so it was actually during the years I was doing the doctorate that I also started the process to be ordained in the Methodist Church. And I didn't really complete that until after I had finished the program, that would have been uh, my doctoral program in 1981, uh, and I was finally ordained as an elder in the Methodist Church during the first years of my teaching at Yale in the 1980s. Oh, okay. Okay, so they went hand-in-hand with your studies. Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how long have you been... I already had done the MDiv degree, but I hadn't been in the ordination process. I had just done the academic side of it first, so... 
that's what I mean when I say I did it backwards. Right, right. And how long have you been at Duke? 25 years now. And, in that, and in that time, how, how would you say that Duke has influenced your development as a thinker um, and as a professor? It, there are so many influential writers and teachers there. I think of Mark Brettler, Stanley Hauerwas, Ellen Davis, Joel Marcus. I mean, I could keep going. Um, and now you even have, I believe, your own student, Kevin Rao. Is he? Yes, Kevin Rowe. Mm-hmm. Kevin Rowe. Yeah. Um, so how how has that community of scholars really um, influenced your your thinking in that time? Well, it's been significant. Uh, many of the people you just mentioned have been very close colleagues uh, over the years that I've been in lots of conversation with. Mark Brettler is a new arrival at Duke. He's only been here a year or so, but... Um, uh, you know, Stanley Hauerwas has been a longtime friend. Uh, Ellen Davis and I have co-authored things and co-edited a book called The Art of Reading Scripture, which was a collaborative project um, that involved a number of scholars from different theological disciplines. Um, and, you know, Kevin Rowe, uh, you're right, he was my doctoral student, but he's now a close friend and colleague and uh, we talk a lot about our work and, and find a lot of illumination and reinforcement from one another. I, I think I would, if I had to characterize what it is about Duke that has influenced or shaped the way I think and write, it has been uh, to focus more clearly the sense that I'm writing to and for the church, even in my technical scholarship. Um, the Duke has a tradition of, uh, it is an official seminary of the United Methodist Church. It, it has a, a tradition of being embedded in the larger conversation of uh, the Orthodox Christian tradition. Um, and I think that I've probably become more aware of the way in which the uh, church's classic creeds and confessional traditions may actually prove illuminating for how we understand the Bible. That may seem like a fairly obvious thing to say, but it actually isn't, by and large, the way that most uh, biblical scholars in the professional biblical guilds have tended to think about their work. Uh, so I, I think that it's it definitely has had an impact that I've been here over this twenty five year period. Well, let's talk about some of your um, some of your works. Uh, the the operative one here is one that you wrote in nineteen eighty nine called "The Echoes of Scripture and the Letters of Paul." What prompted you to write that book? And were you trying to illuminate something that was underappreciated or ignored at the time? Yeah, as it turned out, very much so. Um, the, the development of that book is kind of an interesting thing. When I was at Yale, one of my teaching tasks was to teach the intermediate Greek reading course for divinity students. And as I was trying to figure out how to do that one year, it occurred to me it would be fun to have them read New Testament texts alongside texts from the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, and to see how the New Testament authors were 
uh, quoting and using these Old Testament texts and, and what differences were introduced in the quotations. I had no idea when I started in to do that how fascinating it would turn out to be and, and how complex the differences are between the Septuagint texts and the way that they get taken up into the New Testament. And so uh, it, it started me uh, down a trail of, you know, not just teaching that class, but investigating for myself the, the problems that it brought up. And it was, it was kind of like, uh, I didn't know where I was going, but I had hold of a rope and I was following it hand over hand uh, out of the cave to see where it led. Um, and so when I when I started in to write Echoes of Scripture and Letters of Paul, I, I thought of it more as a kind of uh, deductive study that would work uh, out of uh, purely descriptive analysis of a series of examples to see what I could say about how Paul was using the Old Testament. But in fact, I ended up in a lot of places I never would have predicted, uh, and at the time I wrote that book, there was a, by and large, a consensus among most New Testament scholars that Paul's quotations of the Old Testament were atomistic, proof texting, uh, ignoring the context from which they came. Um, and I just decided the more I looked into it that that was just wrong and that actually the Old Testament was extremely formative for the way Paul thought and that his citations frequently did uh, evoke uh, an awareness of the larger literary Old Testament context from which they were taken. Uh, so a large part of, of Echoes of Scripture in Paul is taken up with trying to demonstrate uh, that phenomenon of uh, Metalepsis. It was a term I learned from the uh, literary scholar and poet John Hollander, uh, who had written a book called uh, The Figure of Echo, uh, a mode of allusion in Milton and after. And uh, Hollander made this point that uh, all great literature is densely allusive and that very often texts are just full of echoes of earlier texts and that a sensitive reading requires one to recognize that and to see where the echoes came from. And metalepsis is the uh, it's the literary device of quoting a piece of text that beckons the reader to discover more of the original context from which the, the uh, fragmentary citation came. So that was that was the discovery, I guess, that I made in, in writing Echoes of Scripture and Letters of Paul, and it really opened up, I think, in the field of New Testament studies, a very different way of thinking about how Paul was related to his own Jewish tradition. I, I guess the, the one other thing I would say about that is that the alternative to the Paul was a proof texter view uh, was that there was a certain body of scholarship that argued that Paul was a uh, because he was a trained rabbi, that you could understand his uses of Old Testament as being uh, instances of Jewish midrash, uh, biblical interpretation in the rabbinic mode. And there were attempts to show how that worked out formally 
uh, in, in Paul's citations, and I found those very unsatisfying as well. I, I, don't, I don't actually think Paul, uh, in his letters, works uh, in the same stylistic vein or genre as, as uh, Jewish biblical midrash. It's, uh, it's a different thing that's going on there. So I was kind of breaking a different trail, I guess I would say, in analyzing Paul as somebody who uh, taps into this deep knowledge of Jewish scripture uh, and evokes Jewish scriptural narratives uh, in a way that is extremely literarily rich. Mm -hmm. Now, um, we'll get into this a little bit later with the Gospels, but I'm curious with the letters of Paul, I mean, are there other examples of genre in that time and place uh, where you can compare what he's doing if it's not Midrash or you know, operating in that same vein, is he really doing something new or are there places of comparative literature where we can say, you know, these instances of metalepsis or, you know, are, um, he has reference points for how to do that or is he, or is he inventing a kind of new genre within his letters? Um, I don't know that I, well, I don't, the genre of the letter, of course, the, the epistle is, is not a Pauline invention. It's, uh, there, there are plenty of letters sure, in antiquity. Sure. Um, the, or even the, as a trope. I mean, if it's different yeah. from, if it's different from Midrash and he is doing, are there other examples? Uh, surely, uh, the church fathers who came after him picked up on this and did similar things. But I'm wondering if there's a way to think of um, what he was doing and, but maybe it's de novo. I mean, I, I don't know. Well, it's, it's hard to come up with something that's an exact parallel. There are analogies of different sorts. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, what he's not doing, for example, is uh, the genre of biblical commentary. Uh, you, you know, you can read the works of Philo, who is a, a Jewish author, uh, who will actually give extended allegorical expositions of particular biblical texts. Uh, or or you, the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have uh, examples of texts that will go more or less line by line and do what's called pesher exegesis, where it quotes a line of scripture and then says, its interpretation is dot, dot, dot. And then it goes to the next line, and it will say its interpretation is. Paul doesn't do that kind of thing exactly. He's, uh, he, he's writing... I think if we had access to um, synagogue sermons contemporary with Paul, which we don't, <laughs> uh, they simply you know, haven't survived in, in mm -hmm. literary form, but if... And what he's doing is more like, I think, what a preacher does in, in evoking a text and then reflecting upon it in various ways, uh, in a way that tries to be edifying for his readers. Um, I, I do think that the letters of Paul in that regard, in the way they use Scripture, are at least as, as far as, as I know, uh, distinctive in their own historical setting. Hmm. Well, since the time that book was published, do you find that others have followed your lead in investigating these literary connections? Are we, are scholars doing a better job of, of seeing these echoes? 
Yes, I, I think we've seen a whole, just, there's been a flood of articles and monographs, uh, many of which even pick up the, the, title, the term echoes in their titles uh, mm-hmm. to talk about these kinds of things. And that sometimes <clears throat> reading some of that stuff, I feel uh, a little bit like the sorcerer's apprentice who <laughs> let the brooms out of the closet and, and uh-huh. people's imaginations, I think, have occasionally run kind of wild. But uh, I'm not responsible for, <laughs> I hope, for all of that. Mm-hmm. But, it, yes, I do think that it, it's been... It's been both widely influential and to some degree controversial. Mm. There, there are some people who say, you know, that this, is, uh, this is not tightly enough controlled methodologically and uh, it's wrong to import all this stuff from the earlier contexts into the citations and who would still hold to the more uh, atomistic view of, of interpreting what Paul is doing. So it's, it's an ongoing debate in the mm-hmm. field. Now, in 1996, you published a very different book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. What led you to write that book? 1996, right? 19, I'm sorry, 1996, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that too grew out of my teaching. Uh, uh, I, When I was at Yale, I started teaching a course on New Testament ethics and um, was very dissatisfied by the books and textbooks that existed uh, in in that field, uh, so started trying to think my way through that as to how, how one could teach students who are training for ministry to engage the ethical significance of the New Testament writings. Um, so I taught that course over a number of years, and the lectures that I gave there kind of grew uh, over time into the into the book uh, the moral vision of the New Testament mm-hmm. now in that model, in that book um, as I referenced earlier this is where you uh, modeled a very close reading of each of the Gospels and the writings of Saint Paul and when I read it many years ago there was a lot in it that I didn't expect to find for instance you know, the first 290 pages of the 470 page book you spent a lot of time, not on preliminaries per se, but on these large, almost sweeping interpretive questions before you can distill down uh, your sense of the moral vision that each of the authors are after and where they're overlapping. Um, Why do we have to look at that arc of each of the gospel narratives and uh, the perspective from Paul before we can extract, you know, or create inferences about the moral, uh, and ethical questions of the New Testament? I I think the reason for that approach would be something like this. Um, There's a a very widespread assumption that when we start talking about ethics, that what we really need is a few basic ethical principles. And that once you have the principles you can sort of apply the principles to individual case studies and and make a judgment. Um, I think that's fundamentally misleading. I think the way we make moral judgments is by understanding who we are in the world by placing ourselves within some kind of larger narrative. And to understand what that larger narrative is, 
you have to do the, the thing you've mentioned of uh, taking this bigger view of how the story is told by the different New Testament witnesses. Uh, those, those stories shape our character. They shape an intuitive sense of what's possible, uh, what it might mean to be a, a wise or virtuous person in the world. Uh, and I don't think that you find the New Testament writers setting forth a short list of principles of justice and love or something like that and then deducing uh, from those principles how people should act. What they do much more is to tell a story that informs who we are as a people. Uh, and the, the way that we make moral judgments is by shaping analogical uh, or metaphorical judgments about how our own personal stories, how the stories of our communities might be like the stories that are told in Scripture. So I think that's the reason for taking that approach of setting forth the vision of each of those uh, authors. And it also is a way of taking more into account the actual diversity within the New Testament writings. Uh, the Bible doesn't speak with one voice. It has testimony from a number of different authors. And part of the problem of forming a New Testament ethic is to ask how you make some sort of synthetic judgment about the unity of those different voices. And before you can do that, you have to understand each of the voices in its own integrity. Mm. Mm. Do you know of any books that try to do something similar with the books of the Hebrew Bible? Um, Did you have a model I, for this? No. No, I didn't have a model. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, I think doing it with the Hebrew Bible uh, is... Uh, perhaps even more difficult because there's just a lot more material there. You have a, a wider diversity of genre with psalms and wisdom literature and uh, historical books and law codes and um, the, the the complexity is just multiplied. I think when you try to do it with the Hebrew Bible, yeah, um, I, I'm I'm aware of some people who have in different ways. Uh, tried to apply some of the sort of thing I did to, to Hebrew Scripture, but it's uh, I, I don't think there's anything quite analogous, that I know at least, from what I did with the New Testament. Hmm. Interesting. One of the shortcomings, I would say, uh, of the moral vision of the New Testament is precisely that it does deal almost exclusively, exclusively with the New Testament and, and doesn't sufficiently take into account the Old Testament as part of Christian Scripture. Right, um, and um, I, I suppose the limitations of mortality prevented me from attempting to do that. But if if one were really going to carry out the project, I started there in its fullness. You would have to do that larger thing of taking in uh, the Old Testament as well as the New. Right. Well, let's let's talk about your two uh, most recent books um, that are closely linked. Uh, the f the first one that was published, Reading Backward, actually came uh, second. Is that correct? Before the Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels? Uh, sort of. The, the Reading Backwards is 
pretty much the published version of the lecture series, the Halcyon Lectures that I gave at Cambridge University. Um, and when I was asked to give those lectures, uh, I was, of course, at that time taken up with being dean of the Divinity School at Duke and was overwhelmed by administrative work. And I had, you know, hundreds of pages of work I'd been doing on the book, which eventually became Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels. Uh, and so what I did uh, in the Holstein Lectures was to extract material out of that much larger manuscript and to condense it into the lectures that became Reading Backwards. And the, those lectures focused very uh, narrowly on the question of how the Gospel writers uh, uh, draw upon Israel's scripture in order to narrate the divine identity of Jesus. So it's it's a Christologically focused uh, set of excerpts from the larger and older manuscript. Um, and so when I finally published then the bigger book, Echoes of Scripture and the Gospels, uh, it re it included most of the material that was in the Holcians. Uh, but now in its larger original context. Does that make sense? Yes, right. Yeah. right. So for both books, your starting point is in many ways something that Jesus says during his post-resurrection appearances. Um, can you talk about how those uh, cues in the New Testament sort of prompted this look back? What, what does he say, and how does it, how does it sort of launch this um, uh, looking back? Well, I suppose the, uh, I think what you're talking about is the story of the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Is that what you're referring yes. to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, in, uh, for listeners who may not have that text immediately at hand or in mind, what happens in that story is that uh, Luke tells the story of two travelers after Jesus' crucifixion who had been followers of Jesus who are despondently leaving the city, and uh, the risen Jesus then uh, appears along the road and walks with them, but they don't recognize him. And uh, he, he asks them, what are you talking about? And they say, oh, we're, you know, we're very sad and uh, hopeless because Jesus, who we thought was a great prophet, has been put to death. Uh, by the Romans and the Jewish authorities, and we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel, but in fact, obviously not, because he was killed. I'm paraphrasing. Um, And so uh, Jesus then says, oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe the scriptures, and launches into a long exposition of how Moses and all the prophets uh, bore witness uh, to the fact that the Messiah must suffer and be raised. And so, and it's only then when they finally arrive at their destination in the little town of Emmaus and sit down at table together and he breaks bread that their, it's, the text says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So there's a, a post-resurrectional exposition of Scripture as uh, revelatory uh, in the, at least in Luke's gospel, that uh, is fundamental to this insight that it's only in 
retrospect that you can come to understand how Moses and the prophets bear witness to Jesus. Right. So how how is it how is reading backward in a figural sense different from reading prophecy forward? And why is the difference important for readers to appreciate? Yeah, that's a very uh, important question. I think in the following way, um, if if we read the Old Testament as predictive prophecy, there's uh, several problems with that. First of all, not very much of the Old Testament actually does take the form of making predictions about some future coming Messiah. And attempts to make it read that way are often seen as, uh, I think, rightly seen as forced and artificial. Um, the Old Testament, there, there are a few passages that look forward in hope to some future king who will restore the kingdom. Uh, a lot of those, particularly uh, in the Psalms, for example, um, there are enigmatic passages, of course, in the, in Isaiah that refer to a suffering figure, although that figure is never described there as a Messiah. Um, but it the whole picture doesn't really come together until you read the the text as I say, backwards through the lens of cross and resurrection. Uh, once you have the story of Jesus, you can go back to the older texts and have a kind of aha recognition that certain things are foreshadowed there. But there's a big difference between foreshadowing and prophecy. And when you're moving forward in a narrative, you can't know uh, what is foreshadowed until you see the un- the full unfolding of the plot and see what actually happens in the end. And then you can do the second, uh, what you might call a second reading of the text in light of its ending that allows you to unravel uh, clues that you never would have seen before. So I think that's why the approach of reading backwards, uh, which Eric Auerbach uh, has described as figural exegesis, uh, is a, a much more helpful description of what's actually going on in the New Testament itself. And that's not just a question of uh, citation, uh, where the gospel writers are, are lifting a quote out, but, they, but it's actually looking for symbols and other figures that are not necessarily direct quotations. Yeah, that's right. That's certainly right. Um, I mean, the, the place where that is most clearly exemplified, I think, is in the Gospel of John, which actually has a relatively small number of Old Testament quotations, but it's just full of uh, echoes of various images uh, from the Old Testament that are then said to be fulfilled in some way in Jesus. Uh, the, The biggest key to all of it, I think, occurs in John 2, where Jesus refers to the temple of his body, and uh, John sees Jesus himself as the fulfillment of all that was figured by the temple as the place of meeting between God and humanity. Um, So John doesn't do that by 
quoting lots of proof texts. He, he does it by discovering these images and reflections. And that's one of the, and each of the gospel writers have their distinctive way of, of um, pulling these allusions or citations from uh, the Hebrew Bible. Um, and it, just as you mentioned, John, I, you note that um, much of what he pulls is really from the Psalms and not from elsewhere in the scriptures. Right. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. John, John, uh, the, in John's sort of limited stock of scripture citations, uh, at least uh, two-thirds of them roughly are from the Psalms. And then the other gospel writers have similar um, sort of distinctive or character, characteristic ways. And this is really what your, uh, your interpretation of each of the gospel writers does, is that it allows you to come up with a coherent um, understanding of the ways of the patterning that's going on within them. Yeah, that's right. Um, each, each one has a, a distinctive way of engaging or evoking these texts. I think the way that most people tend to think about these questions has been heavily determined by the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew has a whole series of uh, explicit quotations, in Matthew's case almost always from the prophets, where he'll say, this happened in order to fulfill what was written by the prophet saying, uh-huh. and then he, then he quotes the text. And Matthew inserts these voiceovers throughout the text to explain to the reader how some aspect of the story of Jesus fulfills uh, a prophecy. And I, I think that's the, the way in which then many, many Christian readers have primarily approached the whole question of the use of the Old Testament and the Gospels. They've assumed that it's this prediction and fulfillment prophetic model that is signaled by Matthew's style of Scripture quotations. But in fact, uh, there's so much more going on even in Matthew, than that. Uh, and, and that style of uh, fulfillment quotation is not characteristic uh, of uh, all four Gospels, especially Mark and Luke, rare, very rarely do something like that. Uh, so one, one editor of the Greek New Testament tallied up the number of references and allusions to the Old Testament and came up with these the following figures. Matthew has 124 Luke 107, Mark 70, and John 27, uh, which we've already touched on it, that you said two-thirds yeah. were from the Psalms. Um, now, this gives you some idea of this effort to sort of tally the, um, uh, the, the, the level of intertextual reference and whatnot. But I must admit that when I uh, got deeper into this a few years ago, I picked up a 1,200-page tome called The Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament, edited by Beale and Carson. And I have to admit that there was a certain kind of panic that swept over me uh, because I think that for most readers, uh, we can't separate out. I think when we're dealing with something that we vaguely consider history or memoir or um, an account that intends to be somewhat... Um, uh, truth-based, uh, there's, there, there is this sense that, uh, the level of referentiality makes it more cooked rather than raw. Um, and is, is there, um, 
it's something that's nice about your book is that you um, one comes away with a greater understanding of the perspective of each of the writers and how they have slightly different uh, use of the scriptures. And yet there is a coherence to that pattern and that you can identify a pattern. But um, how do you think about the the why the writers um, chose to engage in this way? Um, and is this cooked aspect of it? Um, uh, is it? Is it a problem for most readers, or or is that a, the wrong way of looking about at it? Uh, I understand what you mean about being cooked and, I, and how that could be a problem, and I also understand the, the, the problem that emerges when you take that kind of encyclopedic approach that simply says, let's catalog all the biblical quotations. Um, here, here's how I think of it. It seems to me that what the gospel writers were doing in writing their narratives is that they are bearing witness to their own process of discovery in going back and rereading the scriptures in light of the story of Jesus. In other words, I don't think they were starting from some little anthology or selection of proof texts or predictions about a coming Messiah and then shaping the story that they told to fit those predictions. I think instead, what they were doing was reading backwards, starting from accounts of Jesus' teaching and actions that either they, in, in the case of John, at least claims to have been an eyewitness to some of these events, or for the others, more likely, accounts that have been passed along to them in the tradition, stories about Jesus. They're starting there, and then they go back and they reread Israel scripture afresh through the lens of those stories. And as they do that and try to understand how these events happen, what it means to say that these events were according to the scriptures, they discover all sorts of unexpected foreshadowings and correspondences. And there's a kind of aha experience uh, that occurs there. And they're uh, bearing witness to that aha experience as they write the Gospels. So it's the opposite of being cooked. It's it's a matter of having um, a sort of experience of astonishment in seeing how differently those ancient scriptures that they knew well are to be read anew in light of uh, the story of cross and resurrection. Uh, is that speaking to your question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, another way at it might be to think of this um, uh, distinction between high and low Christology. I know your your book is not a critique of other critical approaches, but w- there are a few things that your book, cer- your, both of your books certainly do challenge. And one of them is this notion of of looking at the Gospels for high and low Christologies. And what is generally meant by that? And how does your work kind of frustrate these distinctions? Right. Uh, good question. It, it's That distinction between high and low Christology has to do with the extent to which any particular text thinks of Jesus as God uh, or not. Is Jesus uh, a human figure, uh, a prophet? That's a low Christology. Uh, is Jesus uh, the incarnation of God? That's a high Christology. Uh, and 
very often uh, many works of New Testament scholarship will say you, that the high Christology is a late development, that the original earliest traditions about Jesus uh, represent a low Christology. He was a, he was a Palestinian uh, prophet and teacher who was executed. And that's the historical fact. And then it took about a century for the church to eventually develop these claims that he was divine. Um, that's, I mean, I'm painting there with a very broad brush, but that's the way the terms are usually used. And John is, of course, thought to have the high, highest Christology, and uh, usually Mark and Luke, the lowest Christologies. Um, I just came to the conclusion as I studied this material that that was just fundamentally wrong, that all four Gospels, uh, in their different ways, bear witness to Jesus as the embodiment of the God of Israel. Uh, the Gospel of Mark doesn't have the concept of incarnation in the way that John does, but you find Jesus consistently in that Gospel doing things that God alone can do, uh, forgive sins, still storms, etc., etc. It's evoking uh, narrative patterns from the Old Testament to show that Jesus is doing what uh, identifies him with the divine. So it's it's just the, the terms high and low Christology, I think, are misleading to start with. Yeah. That what's going on in all four Gospels is they're claiming that this human figure, Jesus, is mysteriously the embodiment of Israel's God. They do it in four different narrative ways, but they're all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, another challenge that you more directly confront um, is what you refer to as the Marcionite bias of much Christian preaching or teaching. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, Marcion was a second-century figure who actually contended that the God, the Christian God, the Father of Jesus Christ, was not the same God as the God of the Old Testament. Uh, the God of the Old Testament was a wrathful, vengeful, arbitrary figure who uh, simply needed to be rejected, and that Jesus came to reveal a totally new conception of God. Um, and, in fact, one hears uh, echoes of that Marcionite theology uh, still today in the Church, that people have that uh, caricature of the Old Testament God. Um, and so the, the Marcionite bias in the Church's is found in the way that you rarely, in many churches at least, would hear a sermon on the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't isn't read or preached upon. Um, uh, I tell a, a story, I think it may be in both books, I can't remember now, but it's a student I once had who said that the, the God of the Old Testament was a scary, wrathful God uh, but thank goodness Jesus came along to teach us that we could love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. And I said to the student, you realize you're quoting the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, the fundamental uh, confession that's part of daily Jewish prayer. 
And, you know, Christians can just often have a very odd and distorted view of, of what the God of the Old Testament is like and don't understand the extent to which uh, the New Testament is absolutely insistent on the continuity uh, between um, Israel's confession and, and what the Christian message is. In fact, if I could just build on that and say sure. one more thing, I, I think one implication of the kind of work I've done in these books, uh, including the earlier Paul book, uh, it is to complicate the whole question of the relationship between uh, Judaism and Christianity and, and to insist on a much uh, more nuanced appreciation of the Jewish roots uh, of the Christian gospel. Any kind of simplistic opposition between Judaism and Christianity uh, is simply mistaken. We've got to have deeper conversations about both the commonalities of those traditions and their points of scandal and conflict. Um, So uh, I I don't know if some of your listeners may be familiar with the work of Daniel Boyarin, who's a Jewish scholar who has argued that the real Mm -hmm. separate the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity as separate religions didn't really happen until the fourth century. Um, That's a a kind of um, provocatively articulated way of thinking about it, but I I think Daniel has an extremely good point that certainly in the period that I'm studying of the New Testament writers, uh, these writers did not think of themselves as having abandoned Judaism. They, uh, they were bearing witness to uh, an, a new revelatory disclosure of the God of Israel in Jesus, and they thought of themselves as authentically carrying forward the Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm very curious to know about, um, about the, uh, the influence of of this book, what kind of influence would you like to, it to have? Is it a mainly a book focused for academics, or do you think it has implications for the way we teach the Bible and um, even perhaps you know annotated study Bibles? I mean, I, I see all kinds of implications of uh, mm-hmm. or highlighting of shortcomings with the study Bibles that we currently have uh, that are raised by your book. But how do how would what would you consider the most plausible result of people reading and being influenced by your book? I think it would have really significant implications for the way that, uh, I mean, first of all, within the church, for the way that the Bible is taught and preached upon. Uh, You almost can't, you could open the Gospels at random and put your finger down anywhere and uh, in almost every instance, you can't really interpret what's happening without going back and discovering the Old Testament precursors and roots uh, behind that text. And so I would hope that preachers who read this book uh, would be led to uh, interpret the New Testament in ways that are more deeply informed by the Old Testament and help their congregation see the connections between the Old and New Testament. Um, and 
it's, it's sometimes it can be tricky to do that because not all preaching is exegetically didactic, right? I mean, it's uh, but the, the thing that's interesting about the Gospels is that they, for the most part, are also not didactic. They're they're simply evoking these stories narratively and um, to help people, not only help people see how that's done in the Gospels, but for preachers uh, to do it themselves, to go on creating these narrative links between Old and New Testament in their preaching, I think, is, is a goal that I would hope would be fostered by this book. Um, your question about study Bibles is an interesting one. Very often you'll have study Bibles that will have cross-references of one sort or another to the Old Testament, particularly identifying the source of a quotation. But very often people don't bother to go back and actually look up the quotation and, and see what the context of that quotation is. And I think if people would just learn to do that, it would uh, lead to much more interesting reading and preaching. Hmm. Indeed. Well, I certainly wish we had more time to uh, talk more fully about uh, many of the topics that you raise uh, in your book. Um, our traditional uh, final uh, question on the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? Uh, well, for me, that's a very difficult question. I'm, uh, uh, as explained in the prefatory material of Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels. About a year ago, I was unexpectedly diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and that led to the remarkable, rapid completion of, of Echoes of Scripture in the mm. Gospels. Uh, I'm doing okay now, uh, cautiously hopeful about going forward, but I'm still on medical leave as we have this conversation, and I, uh, I'm therefore, I've been cautious about committing to any big new projects. Uh, I'm kind of at the end of my teaching career, and um, I, d I don't know whether I will be, whether it will be granted to me to write another big book or whether this was the, uh, the final uh, statement from my work. I, I hope that's not the case, but I don't know. And if I tried to tell you what my next project is, I would be making it up. I, I really don't uh, have a, a plan for a next project. We'll just have to wait and see, and you'll let us know if uh, if another one does uh, appear in the coming months. Um, but, well, I, let me, if you have time, let yes. me just say this. That, yes. um, I have been in discussion with a couple of publishers about the possibility of publishing a collection of some of my scattered essays, ah, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I hope to be able to do that, and I also uh, am in discussion with a publisher about publishing a collection of some of my sermons, which would also exemplify uh, what I, we were uh, talking yes. about, mm -hmm. about the, the way that the Old Testament may function in preaching. So um, those, are, those are the more immediate, uh, possibly doable projects. Excellent. Well, if they appear, we'll have to find out if you're available to have you back on. We, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. It's been very good to talk with you. All right. Take care. That concludes my conversation with Richard Hayes about his recent books, 
Reading Backwards, Figural Christology and the Fourfold Gospel Witness, and The Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, both published by Baylor University Press. Please join me again to hear about other new books in biblical studies. To learn about new programs as they are posted, you can follow the channel on Twitter at New Books Bible. As always, thank you for listening.